Welcome to the weekly podcast at Second Ponce de Leon Baptist Church. My name is Doc Hollingsworth. I'm senior pastor of this great congregation, and we're delighted that you've joined us. Our prayer for you is that as you listen to this message, you might feel closer to God and closer to God's hope for you. Our scripture passage this morning is taken from Luke's Gospel, the second chapter, verses 22 through 40. If you happen to be following along in a pew Bible, you can find that passage on page 833, Luke 2, 22 through 40. Listen to the word of God. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, you are now dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel. And to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. And a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped there with fasting and prayer night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Father, sanctify us in thy truth. Thy word is truth. Amen. Let's pray together. Through the written word and the spoken word, may we know your living word, Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. When I was nine years old, I became a fan of the musical Fiddler on the Roof. My family was living in Hendersonville, North Carolina at the time, and my mother had been asked to join the North Henderson High School production of the classic musical through a friendship connection. 
Being the talented and accomplished pianist she is, my mother was brought in as the primary accompanist for the production. It also didn't hurt that she was a fan of Fiddler on the Roof herself, having been raised in a family that loved it. However, with my dad working until late afternoon every day, and my sister Chloe and I still much too young to be home by ourselves, her involvement also meant our involvement. We spent nearly every weekday afternoon for many weeks at the high school, minding our business in the corner of the choir room or around the edges of the theater while the cast and crew rehearsed and prepared. Primarily, we spent our time coloring with crayons and coloring books and playing with dolls and toys and absolutely never, ever arguing or fighting, not even once, because we were perfect little angels. Of course, we couldn't help but pay attention to the music playing and the drama unfolding all around us at the, as the backdrop to every afternoon, especially since our mother was directly involved in each and every note. By the time performance weekend rolled around in early May, Chloe and I were experts. Grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins came to town for the show, and I felt like I was welcoming them to my own show. I was convinced that I could get up there and sing or act any part that they needed me to if any understudy happened to get sick. Each song had become special to me in its own way, particularly the more upbeat and exciting ones, like Tradition and To Life, which looked really fun to perform. However, a song from Fiddler on the Roof that has stuck with me more deeply than the rest since first encountering it in childhood is Sunrise, Sunset. It's the musical centerpiece of the entire show as it encapsulates its main theme, the risings and fallings of life. As a child, I knew this song was important and meaningful to the older people in the room, but I wasn't quite sure for myself what it was about. Nowadays, I have a slightly better idea of what the lyric, I don't remember growing older, when did they, means. Now, for those of us who didn't become nine-year-old experts of this musical, let me give a little context. This song takes place amidst the wedding celebration of the main character Tevia's oldest daughter and her husband. The musical is set in early 20th century Russia in a small Jewish village where the residents live in constant threat of Russian oppression and terrorization. During the wedding, Russian soldiers carry out a violent demonstration on the Jewish villagers, ultimately leading to their forced relocation. The message of sunrise, sunset is realized when the sunrise of the wedding gives way to the sunset of the frightening attack. In today's scripture passage, we are still basking in the light of one of the greatest sunrises this world has ever known, the birth of Jesus Christ, the Holy Child. By this point in Luke's gospel narrative, the angels have all gone back to heaven, the shepherds have returned to their flocks, and the Holy Family is on their way to Jerusalem for their purification in accordance with the law of Moses. When they arrive at the temple, they purchase their required sacrifice from the vendors out front, two turtle doves, 
or two young pigeons. The text doesn't tell us which one they chose, although I'd like to think they went with the more festive option, two turtle doves, instead of two pigeons. Nonetheless, I do find it relevant to note that the standard sacrifice for purification of a baby boy, as found in Leviticus, is a lamb and one of these birds. The option Mary and Joseph choose is allowed when a family cannot afford to purchase the lamb sacrifice. The two turtle doves they select identifies them as a family with financial insecurity. This detail further emphasizes Jesus' outspoken solidarity with the poor and marginalized during during his ministry, as he was one of them. Follow along with me as Mary and Joseph, turtle doves in hand, make their way into the, into the temple. I've never been a new parent, although my wife Milligan and I are proud new parents of a three-month-old kitten. But I can't imagine they're super well-rested at this point, being parents of a newborn. Surely not every night has been as silent as the one we sing about on Christmas Eve. I imagine they're nervous, too, wondering if the story about Jesus' mysterious and miraculous birth has made it this far yet. Then, suddenly, they are confronted by a strange man who we know to be Simeon. We know from the text that Simeon is a righteous and devout man, looking forward to the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested upon him. But the Holy Family hadn't been afforded the background knowledge we get to read about. The text leaves a gap as to how exactly Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God, and whether Simeon asked if he could hold the baby Jesus before taking him or not. I suspect by this point, Mary and Joseph were getting a bit tired of Christmas surprises. By now, everything surrounding Jesus' birth had been unexpected, a real roller coaster ride. From the angel announcing Mary's immaculate conception, to the birth of Jesus in a stable instead of a normal room, to the shepherds showing up unannounced, this hadn't exactly been smooth sailing. Simeon, no matter how well-intentioned his encounter with the Holy Family was, still ruins the chance of the visit to the temple being a normal and quiet occasion. Don't get me wrong, I like Simeon. I like his boldness and his devotion. He knows that church is probably the one place where you'll even consider letting a stranger hold your newborn baby. Picture the startled look on Mary and Joseph's face when Simeon reaches out to take Jesus into his arms. I also appreciate Simeon's healthy relationship with his own mortality. He meets the fulfillment of God's promise that he would not see death before seeing the Lord's Messiah with joy and peace rather than fear and trembling. At long last, he can say that his life's mission is complete and he can now move on in peace. Simeon praises God while he holds the baby Jesus, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I picture Mary and Joseph's smiling and nodding along as they listen to Simeon's blessing about their baby boy. Perhaps Mary is listening extra closely to cross-check Simeon's blessing with the angel Gabriel's annunciation. 
Maybe Mary's train of thought sounded like this. Salvation for all peoples? Yes, I've heard that. A light to the Gentiles? Well, that's kind of new, although I suppose they were always covered under all peoples. Glory to your people Israel? Yes, I believe I covered that in the Magnificat a few months ago. We do learn from the text that Mary and Joseph were amazed at what was being said about Jesus. But to this point in the blessing, I imagine Mary is listening to Simeon much like she would listen to the popular Christmas song, Mary, Did You Know? Apart from some specifically referenced miracles that the gospel writers leave unclear whether Mary knew about in advance, the resounding answer to Mary's foreknowledge of Jesus saving our sons and daughters, delivering her, walking where angels trod, being God incarnate, and one day ruling the nations is, yes, Mary had in fact been told these things, and then some. However, I'm not sure if Mary was yet privy to what Simeon shares next. For this part, he looks directly at Mary, and after noting that Jesus is destined for the falling and rising of many in Israel, as well as, a, as to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, Simeon concludes, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Hang on. Pause the Christmas music. Stop unwrapping presents and pour out the eggnog. This is what I call a record scratch moment, folks. Mary's nodding stops and her smile fades. Her own wholeness and well-being has just been implicated alongside her son's role in God's redemption story. And by this strange man in the temple, no less, How could this sweet baby boy of mine, this miracle child who I love with my whole heart, be the cause of a sword piercing my very soul? Please, God, I'm not ready for this sunrise to be over yet. The narrative quickly sweeps this heavy statement along for the time being as we are next introduced to Anna, an 84-year-old widow who lives at the temple and serves as a prophet of God. Mary doesn't have long to ponder and unpack the meaning of Simeon's ominous warning as Anna begins to praise God and speak about the baby Jesus to the people of the temple, proclaiming his role as Jerusalem's redeemer. If the shepherds were the first evangelists to spread the good news of Jesus' birth, Anna is the first woman, first religious figure, and first person in Jerusalem to spread the news. After Simeon's downer of an ending to his blessing, Anna gets the music going again as Christmas tide carries onward with her joyful presence. I like how scripture includes Anna in this temple narrative, emphasizing the integral part that older members of our faith communities play in the heralding of generations to come and God fulfilling God's promises. The smile returns to Mary's face as another woman celebrates and affirms her amidst this unprecedented circumstance her cousin Elizabeth being the first. The scripture passage concludes with the Holy Family finishing their business at the temple and packing up the family van to head back home to Nazareth. We learn that Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Between the lines of this conclusion, however, I see Mary deep in thought, tossing and turning Simeon's words over 
and over in her mind. Each time she looks at her son, she can't help but wonder, what does he have to do with my soul being pierced? When is it going to happen? The angel didn't tell me about this part of the deal. What is it that keeps Mary going with this worrisome thought creeping in her mind? What is it that gets her out of bed each sunrise? And how does she fall asleep each sunset? How do any of us carry on with this, in this life with the creeping sense of pain and pierced souls always so close at hand? What motivates us to get out of bed in the morning? And what calms our thoughts long enough to allow us to sleep each night? I can't speak for everyone, but I can speak for myself when I say that I struggle with these feelings. On one level, I am quite familiar with soul-piercing moments as a fan of team sports. Over the years, I have felt the sting of all-too-real pain when my beloved teams have lost in tragic fashions. In these moments, it's easy to pity yourself for caring too much about a group of people who were just trying their best to win a game. I won't get into specifics from the pulpit, but if you're interested, come find me and we'll talk. But on a deeper level, life has given me plenty of soul-piercing moments that I find much more difficult to talk about and even think about. In these moments, the nights feel insurmountable. No sunrise seems good enough or strong enough to overcome the darkness. All is dangerous and desperate, muted and mundane, empty. My grandfather's favorite musical was Fiddler on the Roof. He's the reason my mother was especially eager to accept the role as accompanist for the school's production when I was nine. Both he and my grandmother were part of that crowd of family that came to see the show and we had a wonderful time together. Sunrise. Three years later, my grandfather was diagnosed with cancer, multiple myeloma, affecting his bone marrow. Sunset. He underwent chemotherapy and radiation, and the cancer went into remission. Sunrise. The very next year, the cancer came back, and this time it was too much. My grandfather died a couple weeks before Christmas. Sunset. We've all experienced sadness, and I'm sure many of us know what it feels like to experience deep sadness. Each day, the human story is given a new tragedy. How do we keep going with the everyday routines of life, with the growing sense that soul-piercing pain is lurking behind every corner? and every sunrise. What makes it all worth it? When we wake up in the morning, what keeps us from thinking, well, here we go again. Is this all there is? Turn back with me to the warm, fuzzy, familiar part of Luke chapter 2. The shepherds have just left after seeing the baby Jesus lying in the manger as the angels foretold. And they're going around telling everybody the exciting and joyous news of the miracle they have witnessed. Then, verse 19, but Mary treasured all these words and pondered them in her heart. I've always wondered 
why exactly the gospel writer feels the need to include this detail in the story. What is this supposed to say about Mary? Why is it important for us to know that Mary, specifically Mary, treasures and ponders these words of celebration, joy, and affirmation in her heart? Well, verse 35 of today's passage offers a response to this question. Maybe I need to go back to school to learn the difference between heart and soul, or how closely the two are connected, but as somebody who has both, I suggest that when one is pierced, the other is affected. So, when Mary takes special care to strengthen the reserves of her heart with the precious moments and feelings of the night of her son's birth, the future soul piercings don't pierce as deeply. Mary treasured the words of hope the angels spoke to her and pondered them in her heart. Mary treasured the peaceful feeling Joseph gave her when he chose to honor his agreement and their engagement and pondered them in her heart. Mary treasured the shouts of joy that the shepherds of Bethlehem sang and the prophet Anna in the temple and pondered them in her heart. Mary treasured the acts of love shown by all in her community who tended to her throughout her journey into motherhood and pondered them in her heart. Thus, when Mary encounters the hint of future pain that she will experience as the mother of the Messiah, her heart and soul have been adequately and intentionally nourished with plenty supply for the journey home. We continue to celebrate Jesus' birth with Mary, Joseph, Simeon, and Anna. We also know what is to come. Indeed, Jesus' path will eventually bring him back to Jerusalem, and Mary's soul will indeed be pierced as she witnesses the unjust trial, suffering, and capital punishment of her firstborn son. What carries her through? The same thing that always has. Treasures of hope, peace, joy, and love gained from holy fellowship with her community of faith. The memories of those who have gone before her stick with her. Cherished and beloved figures like Joseph, Elizabeth, Simeon, and Anna the people who helped raise and shape her into the woman she grew up to be, the blessings bestowed upon her by God, none greater than the honor of bringing Jesus into the world. And what carries us through when every valley feels twice as deep as the mountaintop and every night feels twice as long as the daytime? Where do we turn? When death comes early, unexpected, to whom can we cry out? Through scripture, we learn that from the start, Jesus didn't do it by himself. Neither should we. Just as Jesus was blessed and nurtured by his community of faith, we should also strive to connect deeply with our faith community. Just as Simeon boldly spoke of the Lord's blessings and promises kept in his life, so should we. Just as the prophet Anna joyfully proclaimed the triumphant entry of the Messiah into the world, we should also share the joy of the Christmastide season with a weary world. And we should preserve room in our community for the Anna and Simeon figures 
full of wisdom and full of years as we learn and grow from their lessons and examples. The power of community is a healing one. After my grandfather's death, my family joined together with my grandmother, aunts, uncles, and cousins, as we always do on Christmas Day. We wondered what would carry us through the soul-piercing pain. We cried together and told our favorite stories about grandfather. And just as we were getting the Christmas dinner prepared, something happened that I have not seen before or since. It started to snow on Christmas, sunrise. Although the world's calendar has turned to 2024 tonight at midnight, the Christian calendar started its new year at the start of Advent season earlier this month. We've been gathering treasures to ponder in our hearts with each week of Advent, and we just added Christ last Sunday night on Christmas Eve as we rang in our Savior's birth together. As the sun sets on 2023 and the sun rises on 2024, go with a renewed trust in the promise of the God who was, is, and will always be right there with us in the joys, pains, and everyday routines of life. Undoubtedly, 2024 will bring its fair share of sunrises and sunsets, highs and lows, beginnings and ends. Thank God there is a sun whose day will never end. Let us honor that sun by being a a community that is in the business of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth, here and now. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you live in the Atlanta area or visiting Atlanta, come and worship with us in person on Sundays at Second Ponstelian Baptist Church.